Hey, how's it going? I want to welcome you to Riverside Friends Church to our next sermon, our next sermon series. For the next like four weeks or so, we're going to be tackling missions. And I want to start by saying, <coughs> as is obvious now, I'm still have a cough. I feel really good. I feel like better. I'm like totally, maybe not quite healed, right? But I feel good. And I've been like working out again, whereas like when I had this cold, I wasn't. <laughs> but unfortunately, I still have this like lung thing going on where when I talk too much, I start to cough, which as a pastor and a preacher, maybe you can appreciate that. <coughs> but I do not. And so I'm going to be drinking this water bottle as I go and trying to get through this. Wow. <coughs> <clears throat> All right, I'm gonna have to pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to take just a moment and just ask that you would just help me get through this sermon time. I know like any sermon I get through or anything that I get through is ultimately because of your grace, but Lord, I ask that right now you would just take a moment and just help me through this to communicate this well for your people, for your goodness, for your glory. We just want to, I just want to take that for you. Just take a moment and ask that of you. Pray this in your name. Amen. All right. All right. I just want to try to take a moment and tackle a question, tackle a statement that I hear pretty regularly. Have you ever heard it said that the God of the Old Testament is nothing like Jesus of the New? You know, it might be this idea that perhaps like God in the Old Testament is vindictive and mean, while Jesus is forgiving and loving. So what I want to do this the, today is like try to look at a number of scriptures across the Bible and show that, <coughs> that God is the same across both. That God, that both the Old Testament, New Testament, God has a plan from the very beginning. And we're going to look back across like almost the entire breadth of scripture. We could do the whole breadth of scripture, but I don't quite have time for that. So when we begin, like the Bible is basically a story about God. <coughs> oh. So the Bible is like basically a story about God. It's not a self-help book. And if we come to the Bible for that reason, we'll likely end up frustrated. We'll be like flipping through pages trying to go like, God, what's the verse that really speaks to my condition now? And instead, the Bible, when we understand it, is God's story. And when we read it as a self-help book, we're, we are asking, we're asking like, when we read any self-help book, we, we come to the self-help book with a question of, what am I supposed to do now? What am I supposed to do now? But when we understand like God's story, we can know like our role in it. And then it's easier to know, like, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to live in this way? And so if we come to it like what, like with a self-help kind of perspective, we miss the point. We miss like that this is ultimately God's story and we're just playing a role in it. So maybe you're here this morning with those questions. Maybe you're here this morning and you've had those questions like, who is God? Like, who is God really good? What do we do with this Old Testament stuff? Or maybe you're here with like a more personal question. What am I supposed to do now? How do I keep on living this way? And if you're here asking those questions, well, I'm glad. I'm glad that you're here. And I hope that today that you feel seen. I hope today you feel like, hey, somebody knows what's up. 
Stephen Hawthorne says, like the ultimate value of our salvation, like the value of our salvation is not to be seen in what we're saved from, but we're saved for what really matters. And I want to talk about that. What really matters today? And so in answering like these questions, I have to start at the beginning and the creation story. We're going to look at like Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. These are really familiar passages. Like even if you've never been a Christian before, this is your first time in church, my guess is that you've heard this verse before. It says, <coughs> excuse me, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, 28. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Or yours might say, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. <coughs> so Genesis 1 describes bringing like chaos into order through the creation of the universe. And we don't have time to unpack like all of the intricacies of Genesis 1. Like we could spend months and months going over that. So briefly, what we need to see from the beginning is that scripture uses this imagery that says, like that might be like kind of unfamiliar. There's this imagery that might be unfamiliar to us that would be like very familiar to the people in the ancient world. And so scripture, like Genesis 1 is using some imagery. In the ancient world, when you build a temple for a god, like imagine like, hey, you have all of these temples in like Rome and ancient Rome and stuff that would be like for these gods. And then you would go in there and at the center of those temples, what you would find is the last thing that would be brought into the temple is the image of that temple's god. The last thing when you would build a temple in ancient times, the last thing you would do is you would put into that temple the image of that god in genesis 1 we see god put his image into this temple that he has created for himself and so the desire of god is that he will live in this temple is that he will live in this temple the universe with his with his image humanity so he tells people to fill the earth and he tells them go like we were never going to stay in the Garden of Eden forever. We were always meant to leave and fill the earth. And God tells his image bearers, go and fill the rest of the universe. <coughs> With, and so like God desires this like worldwide, this universal temple. And so like if we jump ahead a little bit, the Tower of Babel is kind of best understood through the lens that the people kind of gathered into one place against the wishes of God. And so then God like spreads them out all over the world. And so jumping ahead a little bit, then we get into like the Abraham story. This is Genesis chapter 12, verses one to three. The Lord had said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I'll curse you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So did you catch that? Right? God is going to make Abraham this great nation. And as we read the rest of Genesis, we learn that this is the ancient nation of Israel. They're created not for their own sake, but they're created so that all the peoples on earth will be blessed. So God has just sent 
these people all over the world at the Tower of Babel. And now they will be blessed through his one family. That God, what we're seeing is that God wanted to take these people that he has created, his image bearers, and he wants to send them all over the world. And he wants to bless them in every single part of the world. And so by choosing Abraham and creating the ancient nation of Israel, God is not rejecting other nations, but creating a way to bless them. And so Abraham left his home and everything he knew to follow God. <coughs> Excuse me. You know, this week I was reading about like Philadelphia and Boston in colonial times. And there's some like really neat stuff that happened. There was this like intricate road system that connected the two towns together, Boston and Philadelphia. And along the roads, there were like a set of inns that you could travel to and you could rest your horses for the night. There was a whole system set up to do this, to help you do this. Because do you know how long it took to travel from Philadelphia to Boston on horseback or by carriage? It took 12 days. The distance from Philadelphia to Boston is about the same as Des Moines to Minneapolis. So can you imagine taking your horse or your carriage and it takes 12 days to go from Des Moines to Minneapolis and you get to Mason City on the six-day mark. It was 300 miles, and they traveled at 25 to 30 miles a day. Now, in modern times, with our highway system, we've cut that time down from 12 days to five hours. And if you jump in a plane, it takes an hour and a half flight. I don't cover 25 to 30 miles a day, I jump in my car and cover that in half an hour. And so we could think about what if we lost? What's been lost in that? You know, there was a whole set of inns that were like placed along these roads that you would stop at and you could get your horse food and water and you would have a place to sleep. And those inns are no longer open on the carriage roads between Philadelphia and Boston. And can you imagine? Like what it would look like if you tried to ride your horse between the two today. <coughs> like if I tried to jump on a horse and ride my, and ride my horse up Interstate 35, um, like heading towards Minneapolis, like how dangerous would that be? It would be incredibly dangerous. It'd be dangerous for the horse. It'd be dangerous for me. It'd be dangerous for the cars, like flying past me on the interstate at 90 miles an hour or whatever. It would put a lot of people at risk. Do you ever wonder like why people think the God of the Old Testament is vindictive and Jesus is forgiving? I'm going to say it's because we haven't done a good job of teaching them. And sometimes we're like really slow to change. Sometimes we're like, like we're slow to change. We like to hold on to the old ways that we've done things. And I've learned this way, but it's like, I've learned like, this is the way, this is what I know. And so we all have these things that are easier to hold on to rather than let go and change. And I don't know. Like, I don't have to tell you, <coughs> excuse me, I don't have to tell you how, like, your life can resemble riding a horse down the interstate. The horse is spooked and out of control. You're holding on for dear life as the people, as you, like, put the people around you in danger. But I have to tell you there's, like, a better way. Like, I don't need to start days or weeks from now. It can happen today. Like, God has a purpose for your life. 
And if that's you today, like if your life is a mess, if you've held on to these like ways, if you can't let if you can't let go of the of the way things were, and even as they've created a pile of problems for you and the world around you has changed and people have left you and there's like new highway systems that you don't understand and you don't get them and like and your life's a mess, you're riding your horse, you're trying to get from here to there and it's taken far too long and you can't figure out why everybody else around you has like got it figured out and yet you don't have it figured out. And if that's you, I want to tell you, like there's something for you here. God has a plan for you. And this church, it doesn't exist for herself. We exist to bless others. God wants us to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. And God wants to send you on this mission that he has, that he doesn't want you to stay where you're at in the problems. It takes a long time to fill the earth at 30 miles per day. How do we be a church that travels at 30 or 60 miles per hour? How do we move your life from being stuck where you're at, traveling 30 miles a day, trudging along, to how do you get your life to going at 30 or 60 miles an hour? We're going to jump ahead now to Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17 to 19. What's happened here? <coughs> All right. <coughs> Excuse me. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner, loves the immigrant residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. So the book of Deuteronomy is this book about how do the people actually live in the land promised to Abraham. Because what's happened now at this point is like, through Abraham, the people grew to about 70 in number. They all moved down to Egypt. While they were in Egypt, they were initially welcomed. And after several generations, they had grown to thousands of people. And then the new Pharaoh came in and said, wait, we don't like all these people here. Let's like make them slaves so they don't grow too many and overwhelm us. So then they became slaves in Egypt. And then God rescues them out of Egypt. They wander in the desert for 40 years. And boom, this is when the book of Deuteronomy takes over as they're about to cross the Jordan River and they're about to enter the promised land that God first promised to Abraham some like 400 years ago. And it teaches them, how do we actually live here? It says, it takes like all these laws and the teachings of the first four books of the Bible and then it tries to apply them. And in Deuteronomy 10, we see this incredible description of the character of God and how the nation of Israel is supposed to act. God begins Deuteronomy 10 by giving the people the Ten Commandments. He reminds them of the Ten Commandments. If you remember, like the first stone tablets, like Moses goes up onto the mountain and he's there 40 days. God gives him the Ten Commandments. He comes back down and he finds the people. They're worshiping this golden calf that they've created. And Moses takes these stone tablets that, that have the Ten Commandments on it and he throws them down and they break. And Moses goes back up on the mountain and brings, down, brings them down again. And now God gives them a second set of tablets with the same words written on them. And in verse Deuteronomy chapter 10, <coughs> verse 12, is this beautiful question. Here's this beautiful question that gets asked. And he says, so now, O Israel... What does the Lord require of you? What does the Lord God require of you? 
only to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. I think what a beautiful question, right? What does the Lord God require of you? What is it that God actually wants out of you? Only to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve him. And then it says, jumping back to verse 17, for the Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, the great and mighty, awesome, who shows no partiality, accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Says God loves the foreigner. Who, who is this? This is somebody who speaks a different language, who owes no allegiance to the country. These are not people trying to be Israelites. These are any people who live in the land with them. Another word for this might be neighbor. I think we could translate this as God says, God loves the neighbor. And God tells the people, I love them, and so should you. And Jesus comes along like 1,200 years later, and he gets asked the question in Matthew 22. He's, somebody asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And I think Jesus looks back at Deuteronomy chapter 10. I couldn't find this in any commentaries, right? But I think this is what happens. I think, Deuter I think Jesus looks back at Deuteronomy chapter 10, and he says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, like it, is to love your neighbor as yourself. In the Bible, Israel, the nation, is judged on its ability to keep the law. Nations who are not Israel, though, are primarily judged on how they treat their neighbors, how they treat immigrants. An interesting thought experiment that I've had is to think of the United States. Are the people who confess to be Christians, are they more concerned with keeping the law or loving immigrants? and providing for the orphans and widows. In the Bible, Israel as a nation is judged on its ability to keep the law, but nations who are not Israel are primarily judged on how they treat immigrants. It's an interesting thought experiment to think about the United States and where do we fall on that. In the book of Jonah, we're going to jump ahead a little bit. In the book of Jonah, there's a prophet, a prophet Jonah, who learns what it means to love his neighbor, to love the immigrants, in Jonah's case, the neighbor that he learns to love is this warring people who have conquered Jonah's own land. And Jonah is sent to the people of Nineveh, this capital city of the people who have come in and conquered them. And when the people hear the word of God, the worst thing possible happens. They repent from their sin. They turn away. They go, listen, we are wrong. And we want to turn back. And Jonah, he lashes out and he becomes angry with God. And the book of Jonah ends with a question from God to Jonah. And God tells, ask Jonah, he says, <coughs> listen, I know these people. These people have conquered you. They've overcome you. They seem to be the worst of the worst. And yet Jonah 4.11 says, this is God saying, and should I not be concerned about Jonah? Should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left, and also many animals? I'm going to tie this together. Let me tell a quick story, though. There's this guy 
named St. John of the Cross. St. John of the Cross. He lived in the 1500s, right? He was this Catholic priest and monk, and he helped start a movement of people to monasticism. And the church today like owes much to John and his compatriots for their work in soul care. And he's not just celebrated in the Catholic church, but the Lutherans and the Anglicans, they consider him a saint as well. And But John, he was super short, right? He was so short that when Teresa of Avila was starting a monastic community, like she prayed for a monk to come and meet her. And John showed up and Teresa is said to have exclaimed, Lord, I asked for a monk and you sent me half of one? So John, he was living and working as a Catholic priest during the Reformation, and he was exploring ideas of what does it mean to really love God? What does it mean to really love God? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What does it mean to love God? Like Jesus says, love the Lord your God. Deuteronomy is now saying it. And here's what John of the Cross said. John said, herein, a person may know whether they really love God. Are they satisfied with anything less than God? Here's how you can know if you really love God. Are you satisfied with anything less than God? There's a man who's been attending our church for the last number of months, and it's been just a blessing to work with him. It's Evan, Evan Kalo. Uh, this Wednesday, he's going to be teaching our Bible study, um, and he's agreed to teach that regularly. And it's easy to work with him. And, you know, God is calling him to be a pastor. Like, and it's so cool that we get to see that, right? That here, that he is exploring what does it mean to be called as a pastor and to like consider that for his own life. And it's easy for me to work with him because I remember when God called me to be a pastor. Like when I look back and I remember the people who helped me along the way and I had people like encouraging me saying, Robert, I think you should become a pastor. And at first I was skeptical, but then I saw that they were right. <laughs> There's something about remembering, about remembering where we were that God uses to encourage us to help others, right? When we remember where we were, it's easy to think about, okay, I was there and this is the help that I got. And so now I can help others. And here in Deuteronomy chapter 10, God says, love the foreigners, love the immigrants because you were foreigners in Egypt, there are some hard people to love. I know that there are hard people to love because I can be one sometimes. And some of you are hard to love. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, like none of us are easy to love. All of us have our own like character flaws and defects. Like we have bad habits and it's often easier like not to love because of those things. But God says, love them anyways. Love them because you used to be them. See, the people of Deuteronomy, they had never been in Egypt. All of the people from Egypt have died, and these are their kids and grandkids. And when the love of God overwhelms us, we are unsatisfied with <coughs> anything else. Like when, when, like, as like John says, um, like John said, like, we know that we we really love God when we're sad, when we're not satisfied with anything less than God. 
And when the love of God overwhelms us and we're only satisfied with the love of God, and when that becomes our all in all, when that becomes like, boom, this is it, this is all that I need, I am satisfied, the love of God is enough in my life, then loving our neighbors becomes so much easier because the love of God is so big and we are so engrossed in it that nothing else satisfies us, nothing else matters, we don't need anything beyond it. And when we get to that point, it doesn't matter what my neighbor is doing. It doesn't matter what bad habits they have. It doesn't matter that they pick their nose. It doesn't matter that they have like their Christmas decorations already up. It doesn't matter that they might be dumber than a box of rocks. They might not know their right hand from their left hand, but our satisfaction doesn't come from them. It comes from God. And when we look at our neighbors, we don't see their idiosyncrasies and how, how much I hate that their Christmas decorations are already up. We see God. And we see ourselves. And Deuteronomy reminds us that we were slaves in Egypt, that we were like that at one point. And there is something really humanizing of seeing one another and seeing like my face in the face of our neighbor that makes it really difficult to hate them. When I see my face in the face of my neighbor, I find it a little easier to love them. Perhaps this is why Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself. Let's move on to Jesus. Because in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, he leaves the church with something. He leaves the church with a message. He says, then Jesus came to them. <coughs> this is the gathering of the disciples. And he says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So the greatest piece of theology that has been recovered in like the last century is what's called the Missio Dei. The Missio Dei. It's the understanding of the mission of God. Missio, mission, Dei, God. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. So what you see is like all authority for all nations. And the word nations here is from the Greek word ethne. So we get the word ethnicities from ethne. It's go and make disciples of all the people groups in all the world. So God in the beginning of creation, he wanted his people to go and like fill the earth. And when sin entered and they were scattered at the Tower of Babel, they were scattered out. God didn't give up on his plans. He chose to bless the nations through Abraham. And so he told his people, love the foreigners, love those immigrants, love the people who are different than you. And now the church today is this continuation of Abraham. We, the church, join God in mission to see the earth filled with people who bear his image and reflect his goodness into the world. So let me ask a question. This is like a chicken and egg type question, although there's a real answer to this one. Which came first, the church or the mission? Did God create a church for himself and then give them a job to do if they wanted? Or did God already have a purpose and create a church for that purpose? Which came first, the church or the mission? Here's what we need to see. Here's what we need to grasp. Here's how we need to see the Bible as God's story that we are just entering into. The church of God does not exist for herself. We don't exist for ourselves. We weren't created and then given a mission. God created the church because he has a mission. 
the church wasn't created and then given a mission. God created the church because he has a mission. Alan Hirsch says the church of God does not have a mission. Get this right. The church of God does not have a mission. The God of mission has a church. The church of God does not have a mission. The God of mission has a church. God created the church so that all of the world would be filled with his image and goodness. And God loves these people and he wants them to know his love and to enter into it and to be satisfied by it. And it's the role of the church to join God on his mission and to make disciples of all the people groups in all of the world. From the very beginning, we've seen that God's desire is for all people to be blessed through the people of Abraham. And today, the people of Abraham are the church. We've seen that God loves the immigrant and the poor. And Jesus has a mission to see his kingdom extend to the ends of the earth. And we're going to spend the next three weeks covering this in more detail. But today, I want to just lay this foundation for you the God of the Bible, the God of this church, your God has a mission and you are invited onto it. His mission is fulfilled when disciples are made and communities are restored. So what is the church then? Why do we meet together? The church is practice. We come together here in this little temple and we practice all of the things that we should be doing in the big temple that the Lord has made for himself, the universe. We come into this little temple and we rehearse the praise and glory that God needs in his big temple, the world. The Bible is not a self-help book. It's a story of God. It's the story of God who has a mission and a plan and a purpose that, that extends from the very beginning to the very end. We need to see that. that the church of God doesn't have a mission. The God of mission has a church. So let's join him on it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to take a moment and thank you for all of the goodness that you've brought out, all of the goodness that you have shown us in your word today and the deep love you have for us. Lord, I want to thank you that it has been a few minutes since, I've, since I coughed. Thank you, Lord. Lord, would you just help us to live as your people on your mission to get your gospel into all the world so that all people would know you and would be satisfied in your love and would join you to share that love with others. We thank you, Lord. Amen.